You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. And for this episode, we have Benjamin Gorman, uh, who is uh, a friend of mine and somebody that I know. He's uh, an author, uh, a teacher in in Oregon. Uh, His books that he's written uh, works, um, you know, publishing books, but also his own books are entitled The Sum of Our Gods, Corporate High School, The Digital Storm, and uh, the last one entitled, Don't Read uh, This Book. Uh, ben, wanted to welcome you to uh, the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. Thank you very much for having me, I'm excited. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a real pleasure to get you on the show here, uh, Ben, and uh, just kind of uh, chat a bit about the, you know, the craft of writing and, and some of the, uh, you know, some of our mutual interests around uh, public education and things like that. Um, but prior to get into some of the bigger issues about art and writing and such, uh, what were you like uh, when when you were younger as a as a young child? Uh, as a writer, I was kind of uh, spoiled in that uh, my my upbringing is is a writer's upbringing. My folks are both uh, ministers, so writing was part of their job. And, uh, and they, my mom, I remember my first writing experience was my mom taking dictation before I could even write because I would tell these stories and she was like, you should write these down. And so right away that was encouraged. That was fostered in my household. And I was a a weird little kid who liked very much saw things, uh, in, in a way that lent itself toward later becoming a philosophy major in college. Like even when I was little, I, I can remember, walking around the elementary school playground saying things to myself like, in 200 years, is any of this going to matter? Which is a bizarre thing for a child to be thinking about, you know, or, 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 or thinking, what if this were a movie? And like narrating what was going on to myself, kind of Truman Show-esque, like, you know, uh, and, and uh, so already I was thinking very much in terms of narrative and, uh, and, and storytelling, and that's always been really comfortable for me. So that, uh, you know, then my family, uh, when I was in middle school, moved across the country from San Diego to Cincinnati, Ohio. And no knock on Cincinnati, but it is not culturally uh, like San Diego at all. No, and so no, I showed <laughs> up as this guy who like had like, you know, uh, surfer clothes and stuff like that. There's no surfing in Cincinnati. Like I did not fit in at all. And uh, so I kind of retreated into myself uh, very much during high school. I became really introverted and hid in my writing. And so I read voraciously and wrote, uh, you know, I would write all night long. Uh, and that was my way of kind of coping. And it wasn't until I went to college that I went, oh, I can I can be an extrovert. I can choose where I live and I can I can, you know, befriend people and, and kind of be an extrovert. But I had to go through my time in the wilderness in Cincinnati and, and uh, discover my my writing voice to some extent there. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I talk in particular with with authors and, and, and writers, um, there is that ability to process some of those complicated things right in, in unto yourself in a, in a solitary fashion that 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 really can help uh, during that during that time. Um, 
so for you, I mean, was it primarily uh, was it primarily about, um, you know, about developing, you know, as a writer when you saw yourself as an artist, as you developed and as you got older, you pretty much probably started to see yourself or define yourself as a writer. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I think all the way going all the way back to, uh, you know, that that right around the time of that move. So like eighth grade, I remember a, a teacher saying, OK, here's your writing prompt and I want you to go home and write a story. And uh, I went home and wrote 60 pages, which, you know, now as a teacher, I, I know what she did with that. She looked at it and went, oh, my gosh, I have to read 60 pages. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but uh, but at the time I thought, oh, wow, th there's something here. I really can uh, produce a lot. And I was really escaping. I mean, I didn't it wasn't it was far from high art uh, at that point. It was these escapist sci fi stories. It was a way for me to, you know, dodge what was going on in my life and my own feelings to a, lar a large degree. And then it became a way to process. And one of the weird things about writing is it is both solitary and social. You're, you're using this art form that you do in isolation in an attempt to reach out to the world. So there's that constant tension of. You know, am, am I am I spending too much time in the world and I, trying to get this out there, trying to meet people, trying to connect, and I'm not devoting myself to this craft, which is solitary, or am I devoting myself so entirely to the craft that I'm losing touch with the reason that I'm writing in the first place, which is to, to connect with other people. Uh, and so that it wasn't until college that I really started to think about who is my audience? What am I saying to that audience? Is this, you know, this is for their benefit and not just selfish. So that that was that was a process, you know, an important turning point in the process for me as well. Yeah, I really like what you had to say there and basically about the ways of communicating that there, of course, is that solitary process. But, of course, with words, you are trying to get uh, across, you know, to th that is with, you know, beyond you or to a lot of people, or maybe millions of people. It matters what your intent is. Um this uh, I was wondering if you if you had a thought on this question. Um, having studied philosophy uh, myself, and, and and you had mentioned you had studied philosophy. Uh, one of the difficulties I find with philosophers is that they tend to have those thoughts, those very intricate, um, sophisticated, important thoughts. Uh, but they're not always the best at the kind of artistic side of conveying those uh, thoughts. Do you do you have a philosopher or two that when you look at them as a writer, you say, whoa, not only is this, the, you know, this this philosopher, you know, a philosopher, but th they're a writer as well. Any any philosophers? Yes, come to I mean, mind? So, so sometimes it, it kind of works backwards. Sometimes I'll read a novelist and think this person really should be taken more seriously as a philosopher. So like Frank Herbert, sure. when you read Frank Herbert's Dune, uh, he's got these epigraphs at the beginning of each chapter and I'm reading them going, this is, this is, a, you know, this is a series of really coherent philosophies that he's got the, that he's attributed to these various characters and groups uh, that really should be taken very seriously philosophically. Uh, or uh, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, off the top of my head, oh, oh gosh, now I'm blanking on um, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. And Ursula K. Le Guin should sure. be definitely treated as a, a philosopher. There was a movement in the, I'm thinking late 90s, when philosophy started to recognize exactly what you're pointing out, which is that they were getting so uh, into the weeds, into these questions that had no bearing on the society in which they lived. And so I think one of the people who uh, made a real positive contribution in that area was uh, Richard Rorty. And Rorty kind of said, if we're writing stuff that no one can read, uh, that that is, you know, it's filled with so much terminology that is not helpful to the general public, then we're wasting our time. 
So his writing style is far more readable. Um, and then uh, uh, Cornell West does a good job of writing. I don't agree with sure. him on a lot of things, but he is very readable. And so uh, those two kind of jump to mind as people who really write. They're they're you know kind of public intellectuals. Uh, and then I would say that my my favorite right now is Tanahasi Coates. Now I don't know that he would consider himself a philosopher, uh, but I think he really is doing uh, a lot of uh, you know kind of public intellectual kind of work, and his writing is amazing like it you know and i i've yeah. read his fiction as well I, I was actually nervous when his uh he recently had a novel come out and i was nervous because i was going this guy i know he can write i've read his and i know he can write fiction he's he wrote black panther the comic books for a while sure. so i know he can write right. but i was like a novel is a different kind of creature and is he gonna you know be able to pull this off and oh boy can he uh his his book the water dancer is uh, astounding but his all of his writing uh, is that kind of philosophical writing that is accessible and at the same time, you know, shows a great deal of care for the craft. Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate you mentioning that, too, because I I, I hadn't read that book, uh, but I was wondering that myself. You know, I was certainly open minded and being like, well, let's see how this is. But it's uh, it's 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 good to hear about the the quality of that fiction. I'm oh, definitely in a, so, so good. Definitely. Well, and, and if you're like me, like it's it's the you know kind of perfect melding of all these things that I'm really interested in, because, uh, you know, racial justice is something that really animates a lot of my work and a lot of my life. In fact, I've been protesting about every night for the last few weeks. So it's something that is you know really important to me and at the same time i'm a comic book geek and so he tells a slave narrative but kind of has the twist of what if there was a person in the you know who was a slave who had the ability to teleport and so you know logically the, the first thing you do is you figure out how to teleport out of there but then to ask the much more challenging question both of, of the character and of the reader would you teleport back and take on the role of a slave again as part of the Underground Railroad to try and free slaves? Wow. And so it's intense. Uh, and his description of slavery is harrowing and, and, and works all the more effectively because then when the character is wrestling with that question of do I dare to go back into that, you know what he's considering returning to. Um, but the, the way that it presents the, the white characters, uh, uh, even those involved in the abolition movement, is so important for us to read today because so often you will see people who are you know, involved in, in racial justice work and white people are saying, I am willing to sacrifice even the black people involved in this work for a my white agenda. And so, you know, really, re he is wrestling with that in a really deep, rich way and making you feel, hey, it's very hard for white people to take a back seat on this issue and, you know, and, and, and really work for justice in a way that doesn't involve more white supremacy within the movement itself. So uh, it's it is absolutely worth your time. Yeah, and and thanks and, and thanks for that. I appreciate I appreciate your thoughts on that. I want to connect that to a question which is a little bit up ahead, but I'll, I'll I'm going to ask you now. Um, you know, in the discussion on um, on the podcast, and uh, so, you know, some important questions around, you know, just the role of art. You know, what what you know, how, how does it how does it serve? Does it serve an agenda? Does it reinforce you know ideologies? How does it do that? But what you just if I was wondering if you had some comments as far as what you see as the role of art in 
either disrupting or dismantling or interrogating the the issue of, in, in particular within the American society, American racism. What's the role of art? Yeah. Oh, it's so incredibly important and 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 so complex because. Uh, you know, historically, art has been the means by which a lot of racism has been reinforced, whether that was through, I mean, the, one of the first black poets was uh, a, a poet who was brought in to, you know, share her poetry with George Washington. But the poetry is all saying racism is great. It's been so nice that white people have brought us white culture. And so, you know, even then there was this recognition of black art had its place as long as it reinforced the status quo. And, and, and then, you know, throughout our history, the history of, of minstrelry and, and, you know, black music being used merely as entertainment and the, the people producing that music having to make those incredibly difficult decisions where they're saying, on the one hand, I get to be involved in the production of art. I get to be an artist. On the other hand, I have to sacrifice the dignity of doing this work at the behest of people who don't treat me as fully human. So uh, art is incredibly important in both you know, maintaining our racism and challenging our racism. And I think one of the things that white artists really need to think about very carefully is in what ways are we participating in both? Uh, you know, in what ways are we making things normative? And, and then beyond race, I mean, it goes to all, all kinds of things. In what ways am I reinforcing sexism by describing the world that I'm in and making that normative? In what ways am I reinforcing homophobia if I am describing uh, uh, gender identity as I understand it right now, which 50 years from now will look archaic, you know? And so, uh, that those kinds of questions, I, I wrestle a lot with those. I, I think about a lot about what it, what in my work is challenging uh, our our current understandings of race. What of in my work is uh, reinforcing those? What is merely describing the way that that the world works right now, especially in the United States? So that's it, it is really tricky. I think artists have absolutely have a responsibility to be engaged in shaking up their society in every way. I mean, that's a part of what art does. Art should be rebellious uh, at, at some really fundamental level. We describe the world and comment on it, which means we are saying, I'm not merely accepting this. Uh, this is the way things are, and this is the way things should be. And there's, there, there's, there should be a tension there. Uh, that being said, just the act of describing the world is normative. Uh, and so we need to really be thoughtful about the ways that we describe the world. The other thing that I run into personally all the time is that as a white male, I just speaking might be crowding out other voices. And so I'm really cognizant of that. I, I you know, do my best to make sure that I am spending a, a lot of energy promoting voices other than my own. Because if I'm saying, read my books, read my books, read my books, and somebody decides to invest their time to read my books, during that time, they are not reading a black author. And so I, I, I would feel terrible if I were you know, responsible for uh, you know, other voices being pushed out because the world has heard far too much from old white men. <laughs> so I uh, own a small press, and we really have made a very intentional concerted effort to publish more women, more LGBTQ folks, more uh, people of color, so that I am investing my time and energy in promoting voices other than my own. 
I think that's a key part of uh, kind of changing the not just the publishing industry, but changing the, the, the voices that people are exposed to. Yeah, and I see that within, uh, and I certainly appreciate your comments. I see that within your publishing too, and it, it's, it's, it's notab- noticeable, and it's important just to point out, and, and just as far as, um, you know, about what we consider, what you know, what is published, what is seen, and and a lot that isn't seen, and and publishing has always been vitally important uh, in 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 making those choices so um i appreciate your comments around that um well and, as well. and publishing historically because publishing is this intersection of art and commerce it's inherently conservative publishers are always thinking to themselves okay well we we also need to make money so we want to put art out into the world but we need to pay the bills and then what they do is they look back and they say well what paid the bills last year what worked and what worked the year before that and what worked the year before that. And so there's always this looking backwards and the the by its nature, if everybody does that, they end up going, well, I guess we're just going to keep putting out Shakespeare and Homer like it's all going to be dead white guys uh, because that's what worked in the past. So it really takes people who are brave who will say this didn't sell last year, but maybe it will next year. And 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 I believe it should. This is art that the world needs rather than art that is a guaranteed, you know, it'll keep the lights on. And and that the biggest publishing companies, unfortunately, are the least likely to do that because they've got the most in the way of bills to pay. And so they are always going to be, you know, looking backwards. Uh, even this next year, we're going to see a lot more interest in uh, black authors because black authors had a moment where they totally swept the New York Times bestseller list. It was so wonderful to see. Like, it absolutely made my day. Right. And I guarantee next year, those publishing companies are going to go, that worked. What they're not going to do is say, oh, OK, that worked. So what pushes beyond that? We need more Latinx authors. We need to hear more from Asian Americans. We need to hear more from, you know, we need different voices. They're going to always go what worked in the past. And so a real small press like mine can be nimble enough because we don't have to make money. (laughs) In many years, we don't. So I can say, you know, this might not be something that will be financially uh, uh, successful, but I think this is a voice that really needs to get out there. Yeah. And I, oh, that's that, that, and I, I appreciate your thoughts on the back, on the background as far as, you know, um, uh, just, just what, what you're trying to do with opening up that space. Um, I have another question, uh, Ben, about, um, the, the role of, the role of art. Um, what's the role of art in a, in a pandemic? What's the role of art now? Have you as an artist related to this? found yourself saying make questioning this area or trying to figure out what to do or what not to do as an artist absolutely yeah yeah no yeah and and you know i think many artists uh, like me are, are finding the same thing where they're they're struggling to say how do i create art in this time and at the same time they're saying but i can't not because i'm i'm, I'm an artist it's become part of my identity and it's a compulsion so i'm going to create art but i'm not sure how it fits in this world and and maybe that's actually ideal because so much of what this covid has presented us with is just a, a you know a, a mountain of uncertainty and so even reflecting that in our art, it might be entirely appropriate to say we are not sure how to reflect this world, how to engage with this world right now, because I am describing a world of uncertainty, 
Uh, for me, what I started doing, I started writing a, a novel. One of I'm, for for the first time in my life, I'm writing multiple books at the same time, uh, which is one of those things that lots of uh, authors recommended to me. They said, "Oh yeah, never just work on one at a time," and I dismissed it. I just went, "Oh no, that's not my process. That's fine that that works for you, but I need to focus sure, on one at sure. a time." And now I'm trying it. I'm going, oh, yeah, it turns out those folks really knew what they were talking about because it's really nice to be able to go. I'm not feeling this one today. I'm hopping to this other project. Oh, I'm not feeling this one. I'm hopping to this other. So that has made me more productive. Uh, and, you know, and and so I'm, I'm cranking out three books at a time. Uh, but one of them is about a guy who is uh, on a spaceship. I'm a sci fi author. He's on a spaceship. He is th there is a a. Uh, virus that is, uh, you know, loose on this giant ship, and he is quarantined to his cabin. And so it reflects that whole, you know, how it feels to be stuck, uh, and and just resets it in a new space. Uh, sure. And then there's, you know, the the, the, the plot, and you know, he, he does get out and it gets into some some deeper things. There is the the there are folks on the ship who are saying the virus isn't real. And so it allows me to really play with this idea of propaganda and how deadly that propaganda is in a time of a pandemic. Uh, and at the same time, it's on a spaceship. So it provides that remove. We can go, oh, this is a story. It's not just a video of somebody, you know, uh, not wearing a mask and, and screaming strange conspiracy theories in our world. Um, but I hope that and, I, it's, and it's not a huge leap for a reader to easily <laughs> make that connection. Um, so that that's one that I'm really enjoying playing with right now. Well, and and on that too, I want to jump in a tiny bit on the the science fiction. I know you brought up in 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 you know both uh, you as a, a science fiction writer um, and you know Ursula uh, Legan that you had mentioned. Um, you know I'm a big science fiction fan myself, also comic books. And one of the things I find uh, is that those who are into the genres know that. Some of the more um, controversial or difficult themes around, you know, around race or environmental issues, things like that, you know, sometimes have had more fertile ground in science fiction for a longer amount of time. Um, you know, it's it's just been that space uh, for for it develop. And I think one of the things and and I'd like to hear your comments, I think sometimes when you know, I don't know, almost these secrets or you encounter these type of texts and you tell others about it, um, you, you sometimes wonder is like, you know, do, hey, don't you know what's happening? Don't you know what Ursula, you know, again, was talking about? Like for this right, amount of time? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I, what, I, what, yeah, I've had ahead. many people who will say like, oh, I don't like science fiction. And then you'll start to kind of interrogate that a little bit and they'll go and you'll find out, oh, they did read 1984 and they read Brave New World and they read The Road and they're OK, well, you, you've read a lot of science fiction, you know, so I think part of it is people have a perception of what science fiction is that is not necessarily connected to that, you know, the, the actual experience of reading science fiction. And the same thing with with, you know, with uh, with comic books, they'll go, oh, I don't like comic books. And then you find out that, yeah, they've seen every comic book movie. They know the characters backwards and forwards. They're so ingrained in our culture. They, they can make Batman and Bane jokes. They just don't realize they are comic book fans, too, because they're not engaging with comic books, you know, in, in print form. So I, I think that the comic books and and uh, I mean, comic books are, are to some extent our national religion. They are the way that we have processed, you know, in, in the way that lots of other cultures had uh, a, a pantheon of gods 
we have comic book characters, and they allow us to explore a lot of things that uh, ancient religions explored through their pantheon of gods. And then science fiction allows us to do futurism in a comfortable way. It allows us to say, what if? And that's really vital. Uh, if we're going to be a thoughtful people, we're going to be a people who imagine what the world could be like. Uh, and and often those kinds of things get dismissed. People will just go, oh, science fiction and comic books, those, those are for kids. I'm like, really? Thinking about the way the world should be is absolutely needs to be an adult endeavor. Like We need <laughs> to be thinking about the, the kind of world we might like to create. And thinking about, you know, how we feel and what one of the things comic books allow us to do is to think about how we feel about really huge questions of, of especially identity. So much of comic books are about who is this person versus who are they really? Is the hero underneath the mask? Who is the, you know, how does the character present themselves? And so it's a great opportunity for metaphors about race, about uh, sexual identity. You know, uh, not revealing who you really are is a lot of what, uh, you know, LGBTQ folks wrestle with, especially in their younger lives. Uh, and so the comic books offer really fertile ground for asking really difficult uh, questions about how do we feel about those kinds of questions. Yeah, I, I really like your comments there. And I've, I've you know, I've definitely felt that dynamic. Um, and, you know, you see you see it, I think, within comic books. There's the typical narrative with Marvel comics, you know, that that's been, you know, around with uh, being more maybe cutting edge in the, the 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 typology of, you know, who heroes are right um, within Marvel compared to old DC ones. But you see a lot of independent comics uh, publishers now really just trying to um, just really change what comics look like and uh, the type of discussions that they're going to get into. And again, it's a small publisher. Sometimes it's a small publisher uh, dynamic that helps create that. It doesn't always come from, you know, or sometimes rarely comes from the, your standard media, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Marvel and DC are both so big that they have to, you know, employ a lot of people and pay the bills. And so they're, what they'll often do is something will come out in an indie form that's really edgy. And then Marvel and DC will wait until they know it's a safe bet and then they'll buy it. And so that's where some of the coolest stuff that's coming out from them comes from is it started off as an indie or the artist really got their start doing indie work. And then once Marvel was pretty sure that, Instead of a you know a, a comic book about a muscle-bound hero who goes around punching muscle-bound bad guys, what about a little girl who has a pet Tyrannosaurus? You know, yeah, and they're sure. like, no way, right. that's gonna fly. And then once you know, once they see, oh, people love this artist's work, now let's go get you know pick that pick that artist up. So uh, that's how a lot of uh, that kind of stuff gets into those those you know main. main and even there, they're looking for edgy stuff, but they've got to make sure that it kind of fits in the brand a little bit. Uh, but yeah, comics, uh, you know, Marvel's been, you know, asking difficult questions about race since, you know, X-Men and Black Panther and going back to the 60s. Uh, so they, they've, you know, really been pushing uh, and they were able to do so because a lot of adults kind of weren't paying attention. And so they were able to get kids to uh to you know back when they were more for kids to really think about some things uh and and you know I, their their parents may have been really disturbed <laughs> by by yeah. what their kids were uh, were contemplating but they didn't take it seriously enough to find out so good for them yeah i i, I appreciate your comments there and, and and you know definitely share a lot of the 
uh, joy of, of, of that, um, of that art form. Um, Hey, uh, Ben, I wanted to ask you, I'd asked you, uh, if, if you could, um, maybe give a little bit of a background to, a a, a piece, uh, if you could read as part of the program, um, a piece of yours that you've, uh, written. I was wondering if you could take a, you know, take a few minutes to do that, kind of tell us a little bit of the background and, uh, just, and, uh, yeah, just, uh, give us a little bit of your writing. Absolutely. So the, uh, the, the piece I'm going to read, I, I, I went back and forth. A lot of the work that I've got doesn't fit into, you know, a short reading. And so I, I was looking for an excerpt that would fit time-wise. And I think the, the best one that kind of uh, stands alone and gives folks a, a good feel is from corporate high school. Now, the trick here for your listeners is my voice does not fit. So the protagonist of this story is 17. She's female. She's black. She's very, very different from me. So you have to use your imagination a little bit and imagine that uh, this is coming to you in a voice other than uh, that of a you know 43-year-old uh, white guy. Yeah, but, so this, uh, is, this it, is radio. This is radio. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> uh, so people could use their imaginations here a little bit. But uh, the, the premise here, this is very near the beginning of corporate high school. And the uh, character Harriet is about to – she's about to start at a new corporate high school. She's had to travel across the country because her uh, mother has been arrested and they are moving to be nearer to the the corporate jail everything is run by the same corporation and so she's uh, they're they're moving nearer to to mom and therefore they uh, have she has to start at a new school so this is the night before she starts the school tomorrow's my first day at a new school so of course i'm nervous i'm a wreck it affects everything i do like i want to eat but when i think about grabbing one of the cookies we bought on the train then I think about not fitting into my jeans for the first day, and I walk around the kitchen in a little circle three times like a nervous dog. Then I give up on the cookies, come back to my suitcase, and try to pick out my clothes again. And that's a whole other nightmare. But I've taken a break from that task for too long now, so I'm diving in again. Okay, I think I've got my outfit picked out. I think it's a lot harder for girls than for guys. It's 2114, so you'd think we'd be past that kind of sexism, but it's still there. When guys go clothes shopping, Corpmart basically gives them three choices of looks. They can get sports clothes, hunting clothes, and rock and roll clothes. The sports clothes are sweatpants or athletic shorts and t-shirts with the logos of sports teams on them. The hunting clothes are camo jeans and camo shirts or t-shirts with pictures of animals, uh, of animals on them. The rock and roll clothes are black or blue jeans and t-shirts with the logos of bands on them. Those are the options. Guys can be jocks or hunters or musicians. If they want to be interesting, they can mix and match. Their outfits can say, I like this band, but my camo pants tell you I'm a really aggressive fan. Or, these sweatpants tell you I like sports, but the animals on my shirt tell you I mostly play hunting video games. Or, I'm wearing this team shirt because I like to watch football on TV, but these baggy jeans tell you I'm a cool, casual fan. There are maybe nine other combinations, but that's basically it. Girls' clothes are so much more difficult because even though the corporation wants to put us into three groups, they all get complicated by the sizes we can buy. The young women's department has clothes for girls who want to look sexy fashionable, sexy athletic, and not sexy religious. But if you mix and match those, there are millions of messages you can send. Plus, it's totally okay for a girl to buy stuff in the young men's department, but if a guy does that, even in 2114, people are not cool with that. I don't think it's homophobia as much as a kind of horrified reaction that a guy doesn't want to fit in. But if a girl goes into the young men's department, it's like she's just looking for a new way to fit in. And people are okay with that, which is unfair. It also means girls have even more choices to make when they're trying to decide what kind of messages to send. 
Like if I got boys jeans that were really loose, that could mean I'm really casual about things or it could mean I'm trying to rebel against gender stereotypes or maybe that I like video games and don't play sports. If I paired them with a tight athletic top over a sports bra, it could mean I'm athletic but also really conservative and I'm hiding some tight athletic shorts underneath. Or it could mean I'm athletic but I'm interested in guys who aren't. Or a dozen other things. Or I could get really tight white jeans in the sexy, fashionable part of the young women's section and then pair them with a loose rock and roll t-shirt from the young men's section, and that could mean I'm on the cutting edge of fashion and I'm artistic, or that I'm a band groupie turbo slut, or, if it's a Christian band, that I'm one of those sexy for Jesus girls and the white is a sign of purity and the tight is a sign of sexy. Of course, white jeans would also send the message that I'm the kind of girl who never spills anything and doesn't ever feel nervous about getting her period, and that is definitely not me because I'm anxious about everything all the time, which is why I don't own any white jeans. So here's what I picked. For a top, I'm going to wear a t-shirt from a band in Illinois. The band is called Go Go Dr. Claw, a reference to a cartoon show from the last century that I've never seen before, but the shirt is black and tight but not too tight, with a little cut at the neckline that's long but not too long, so it hints at the cleavage I don't really have but doesn't actually show that I don't have any. Besides the cut, I like the shirt because it's rock and roll, but they don't have it at Corp Mart, which pretty much sums up my taste in music. For pants, I'm wearing these black and gray camo cargos that are too big for me. I'm skinny, so they ride low on my hips, showing off my best feature, my waistline, and hiding the fact that I don't have much in the way of hips or ass. Plus, because they're so loose, it might look like I'm the kind of person who doesn't really care that she, uh, what she wears and just grabs something crumpled up next to the bed she rolled out of in the morning. I would like to pretend to be her, rather than the person who spent more than an hour trying to figure out what to wear tomorrow. Come to think of it, I'm going to throw them in a pile next to my bed right now, so they have the right wrinkles and not the ones from the suitcase. Probably no one would notice that, but I would spend all day imagining that they were all noticing. Done. Balled up and crumpled on the far side of one of the hotel room's beds. I have to share a room with my dad until he gets us an apartment, and that could take a few days. He wouldn't like me tossing my clothes on the floor. He'd probably accept it if I explained why, or he'd grumble about how crazy teenage girls are and let me leave them there, but it's not worth trying to explain it. It's better if he just doesn't notice them. The most important part of the outfit is the part no one will see. It's the neck necklace that Selena gave me. She's my best friend in Illinois. They have a machine at Corp Mart that will print military-style dog tags with whatever you want on them. She got me one that says, Love you, hermanita negrita, Selena. That's what she has called me since we became friends in first grade, because I have dark skin and she speaks Spanish. Selena's fourth-generation American, or as she likes to say, my people came here as illegal immigrants back when Americans were treating illegals like shit, back before Americans were illegal immigrants in Canada. That's how she talks. I miss her. It's only been a couple of days, but I wish she were here so bad. I wish she could go to the new school with me tomorrow. She'd protect me. She's shorter than I am now, but she's so ballsy that if anybody looked at me sideways, she'd get right up in their face and use every word in the corporate school's forbidden word list in two languages. And it's a long list of words. Instead, if anybody looks at me sideways, I'll just touch the necklace and know she's got my back. Maybe that will give me a little bit of courage. Right now, I need it. Thanks, Ben. And that was from Corporate High School? Yeah, so that's from Corporate High School, a novel about a, uh, a world where one corporation has taken over all of the schools and by taking over the schools has taken over the world. Because if you can train all the kids to believe that corporations should run everything, then you run everything. Uh, th thanks for reading that. I enjoyed that. And um, 
yeah, I, we, we, I, I just love to have a lot more lately where, you know, uh, authors and singers and such can share kind of directly uh, the stuff that you're working on. Um, share those art pieces. I, I want to move to a big question, uh, Ben, uh, which as a philosopher, you'll, you'll be OK. You'll be OK with um, <laughs> what is art? Um, this is I love this question. It is huge. Uh, so I think for for me and I know I know there are you know very different opinions about this but for me art is the communicative exercise by which we create community so we are trying to communicate with other people in order to create a shared experience and that, that we create a community around um, and so that has a lot of component parts like art does have to be to some extent entertaining even the kind of art that is you know, aggressive and that is, uh, you know, trying to be objectionable, tries to be objectionable in such a way as to include at least some people into it. So if I'm, you know, if I'm screaming at one group, I am saying to another group, join me in screaming at that other group. So there, there is something about it that is always s supposed to be entertaining. We are trying to c welcome people in to create a community. And then we've got to have something to say. We're saying, okay, now that we are we're joined in this way, this is something that bonds us, and that could be ideas, and that could be uh, just the entertainment experience. Uh, but in some way, we're creating a you know a, a shared experience, and I think that. And then once we've created that experience, art serves the function of joining us towards some kind of common purpose, and that can be wonderful. I I, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I think anything people do together, art can do if that makes sense. Art yeah, is yeah. what joins us so that we can accomplish the things that, that human beings in concert can accomplish. And so, you know, we, we have put human beings on the moon. We, I very much hope we will put people on Mars. That it, it, it is not you know, an exaggeration to say art played a big role in that, in, in making people believe that was possible, in bringing together the people who, uh, who did that. Art may also bring together the, 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 people who literally will destroy this world. Uh, and so, you know, uh, collective uh, uh, action by human beings is not always good. Um, and art can definitely participate in, in the worst of, of human action as well. But art is the thing that joins us. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I, in, in listening to your definition, I definitely thought about a, a lot of the implement, uh, the implications, you know, for, you know, art, uh, through politics, art ability to organize, express. Um, and like you said, the kind of, there's a popular element, uh, you know, to your definition that you have to be communicating something, uh, to somebody in, in making some connection that way. And that connection, can go in different directions to put it yeah. well and I, and I come across i have come across artists who don't want to think about audience at all who do not really have any interest they will say i don't care if this you know if anybody reads what i write and i'll say well then write keep a diary like you do need to be thinking about your audience you do need to care enough and one of the things i tell my students is if somebody chooses to read your writing they are giving you the single most valuable thing they can ever possibly possess time and you owe them you know you owe them to to do all the legwork to give them something that is worthy of that time so uh i i, I do think that art Artists have a real, a giant responsibility, not just socially, not just to say this is the way the world should be. Even if we're writing something that's 
really light or, you know, creating something, you know, creating a dance or music that's merely for, uh, you know, entertainment, we still have a responsibility to do it in such a way that it is worthy of the time of the people who watch that dance or listen to that song. Like we, we have to be worth that. Yeah. And taking the audience into consideration, that brings up that whole, you know, that whole other dynamic. And I, and I think you're right. I think there's strong views around, you know, I think you could easily talk to an artist that does express the strong view of saying, I, I don't know what's out there in the world. This came from me and receive it as you will. Right. Versus right. the fact that you do have to consider a lot of times that you're trying to do or say something uh, right. or other with what you're, what you're, um, what you're creating. Um, one of the, uh, just a couple more questions, Ben, but, um, related to that, um, is the question of, uh, why do you create art? Right. And, um, and I found that recently asking this question, you know, within the pandemic, that general question of what you do with your time, do you ever step back and say, you know, why am I writing this, uh, book or what am I trying to express with this? The the general question of why you're trying to create the art that you do. Oh gosh, yes. Well I, I am a, I'm kind of I'm kind of a, a rolling ball of anxiety. <laughs> so I'm constantly second guessing myself. And I think like so many artists, I really struggle with imposter syndrome. I'm like, you know, I think as soon as as soon as I turn my back, everybody goes, that guy actually thinks he's an artist. Like he thinks he, you know, he thinks he's a writer. So I think I, and I expect that there are a lot of artists who really struggle with that. Um, so yeah, I'm constantly thinking, is this worthwhile? Am I, am I wasting my time? And I'll revert back to that, you know, second grader who's wandering around the playground saying, is any of this going to matter in 200 years? <laughs> like, you know, I, I can, I can easily fall into that trap. It's very natural for me to go, ah, maybe none of this matters. Uh, and then I have to remind myself, you know, well, actually remind myself might not even be the, 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 the right way to say it, because maybe it's justifying to myself. Uh, part of it, I'm not sure, in all honesty, if I write out of a sense of compulsion, if I write because I'm a writer and, and I love it and it's what I do and therefore I would do it anyway, and then right. I justify it to myself that I'm trying to do something valuable with that writing or if it's the other way around. Uh, is it that I want to do something, uh, you know, in the world that's positive and because I'm a writer that becomes my outlet? I don't know which way it goes. And, and it could be that I am, uh, you know, that that I can't consciously know. It could be that I am uh, justifying you know, the, the inverse to myself. But I, I, I do try and think about how could this be received? How could this be valuable uh, to to readers, you know, and and engage in a larger conversation. And it depends on the art that I'm working with. Right now, I'm working on a book of poetry, and it's very intimate kind of uh, work in terms of this. This is the kind of work that I I want somebody to pick up the book of poetry and go. I feel a, a one-on-one connection with this poet. This is somebody I know. Sure. And sure, so it's not personal. a lot of social themes. It's very very personal. Uh, whereas you know some of my uh, my larger works, my my uh, most recent novel that came out, Don't Read This Book, is absolutely about asking, you know, some of the absolute biggest questions I could think of. You know, it's it's a book about essentially about death and identity. Uh, can can people who have been can specifically, you know, straight white males who have been told that what we do always wins possibly comprehend death or is if we actually thought about death, would it paralyze us? 
and and so it's it's asking some big big questions in the context of a book about vampires and werewolves and a golem and you know uh, yeah <laughs> but that's I love the these funny characters. The King of Trolls is absolutely fucking hysterical. <laughs> like, I love these kind of fun characters, uh, but the questions that they're posing are really big ones in some cases. And then in some cases, like the Book of Poetry, I'm just saying, like, hey, I'm here. Does anybody else feel that? <laughs> you know? Right, right. Well, speaking of big questions, how about the uh, how about the how about this one? Why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah, the biggest question. Um, I, uh, and, and like a good philosopher, I would break that down, right? So let <laughs> um, right. <laughs> the, so the, I, the 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 presupposition there is that there is something rather than nothing, and I will stipulate that I do believe that. My conception of the fact that there is something rather than nothing, though, is pretty limited. So I'm deeply agnostic, uh, and so I do not know what the nature of the reality that I inhabit even is. I don't pretend, I, I do not feign certainty. Uh, so I, uh, I, I, I think even like the cogito is fundamentally bullshit. Like, you know, I think therefore I am. Nope, that's not logical. I think therefore there's a thinker is probably as, as, uh, as far as we can go from there. Or I, 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 I think therefore I think. So, yeah. Is there an experience that there is someone having? Yes, like that is that is the experience that I am am conscious of. What is the nature of that reality? Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm I am not you know 100% confident that there is a material world. I, I think that is beyond what is knowable. That's that's noumenal and not phenomenal. So in in the phenomena that I experience let's say there is something, but I can't tell you what it is, right? So then the question is, why does that exist? And within the the sphere of the phenomena, so within what I have experienced, what justifies the existence within this uh, 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 sphere, I do not know. There very well could be something outside of my experience that says, this is why we created this, but I am somebody who, you know, used to have a deep religious faith and totally lost it. And so I don't know why this existence persists, uh, why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. Within this, this sphere, I am trying to make this world as good a place as I can make it. Uh, if I presuppose that other people exist, I've then from there, I want them to have the best experience they can have. Uh, but it is, I, you know, I, for me, it's, there's a lot of unknowns, uh, and I don't, I don't, I, I am learning kind of on a day-to-day -day basis how to make choices without certainty. So without knowing that other people exist, how can I make their experience as good as possible? Without knowing that this universe exists beyond the phenomena that I'm experiencing, how can I make it the, the 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 best universe for my son to live in that I possibly can? You know, if he, assuming he is experiencing the same phenomena, I want his to be a real positive experience. Um, but it's not based on you know some kind of concrete material certainty for me. Yeah, and you and you view it uh, even within that, uh, and listening to your explanation, and uh, you look at it in a very moral way, which brings in a very interesting uh you know dimension to it it's kind of like how do i exist here and how do i interact with others which definitely connects back to the discussion we talked about um within uh, politics politics and art hey uh, ben 
Um, can you let the listeners know the best way to, um, you know, connect with you, uh, you know, in your art and your publishing company so um, they, they, they can find you and the, the other works uh, that you support? Sure. So the, the best way, uh, the, the way that I wish everybody would do it is uh, through your local independent bookstore. Independent bookstores are really hurting right now. And so if you've got a local independent bookstore that is advertising that they are doing deliveries, some of them are doing deliveries. A lot of them are doing, you know, like outside the door uh, contactless pickup. Please give them a call, order my books. And they'll set them out in front of the door, in front of the, the building and you can go get them and uh, you can keep those those places alive. If you are uh, also, you know, if you're like me and you're buying a lot of stuff on Amazon uh, and, you know, that no, no, no judgment, uh, all my books are on Amazon, uh, you know, Powell's, Barnes and Noble, so whatever is your, your online bookstore of choice. Uh, but I do encourage folks to check out. You will, you know, probably pay a premium because you are helping that independent bookstore live. But that's a good thing to have in your community. So if you've got one, uh, go go that way. Uh, in terms of just other stuff that I'm up to, um, I'm on Twitter uh, and Instagram. Both of my handles are uh, at Teacher Gorman, all one word. So uh, Teacher Gorman, uh, Instagram and Twitter. And I'm on, you know, I've got a, an author page on Facebook and I'm real uh, active there. But Twitter tends to be my favorite lately because that's where I'm getting the most up to the minute news on the world falling apart. So I've been, yeah, having, right. been a, paying a lot of attention to Twitter lately. Oh man, hey uh, Ben, I gotta. I just want to let you know. Um, I appreciate your work as a public school teacher, um, uh, working uh, in the labor movement. Um, you know, working in important ways uh, and advocating for folks. Uh, I just want to let you know I appreciate that and really uh, enjoyed. Um, you know, spending the time and getting getting to know a little bit more about the you know your your thoughts on some some big questions. So. Um, Thanks, well, thank thanks you so for much. all the all of the uh, you know help you gave to all of us in the labor movement uh, with your work in the labor movement. That's you know absolutely vital, and uh, uh, that's you know that's uh, we we are we are it's an uphill battle a lot of the time, but uh, we're fighting for not just workers but for everyone that those workers serves, and for us that's our kids. So I I, I feel very uh, inspired by the work that we get to do. We're lucky. It's an honor to get to serve the next generation. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Ben. Hey, you know what the thing is, too, Ben? We're we're gonna win. I'll tell you that too. We're gonna win. Yeah. Well, in the in the long run, they you know the 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 the, the arc of history, you know, it, it it does bend toward justice. A society cannot persist that doesn't take care of its children. And so we'll either figure that out or we won't be here. <laughs> we we win or we perish. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, uh, thanks, uh, Ben Gorman. Uh, thanks for your time on the podcast and hope to hear from you soon. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for right. giving me the opportunity. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. 